Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today's episode is about the Western Development Museum, or the WDM. The WDM is a museum with multiple branches around Saskatchewan, Canada, though our discussion today will mainly focus on its large branch in Saskatoon. This museum will be familiar to any listeners that, like me, grew up in and around Saskatoon. As one of the most important museums in Saskatchewan, it's a very common field trip destination for schools. For those who haven't visited the museum, we'll get into a more detailed description of the museum in a moment, but for now it's enough to know that the WDM focuses on telling the history of Western Canada, particularly the province of Saskatchewan. To discuss the WDM with me, I'll be joined by Tyla Betke. Tyla is a PhD student at Carleton University whose research focuses on themes related to settler colonialism, borders, and indigenous history in the North American West. Tyla also previously worked at the Western Development Museum, so she has a rare level of expertise into both the museum and the history of the region it focuses on. In our conversation today, we'll be focusing especially on how the museum represents indigenous history and the history of settler colonialism in Western Canada. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into it. All right. I'm very excited to be joined here today by an old friend of mine, Tyla Betke. Tyla, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what your research focuses on? Yes. So I'm a PhD student at Carleton University. I did my undergrad and master's at the University of Saskatchewan, where we met. Um, Originally, I'm from Manitoba. And I research um, settler colonialism and borders, and specifically I work with a Cree community in Saskatchewan that were that are the descendants of Big Bear's Band. And so my project is sort of in consultation with them to track the diaspora or the dispersal of Big Bear's Band. It's a really interesting topic, and I've heard about it a little bit before from you. Mm-hmm. For our conversation today, we're going to be talking about the Western Development Museum. Probably a lot of the listeners of this podcast, because probably a lot of the listeners are friends of mine, uh, have been to this museum. But in case they haven't, can you tell us a little bit about this museum? Sure. So I chose the Western Development Museum to talk about because I did work there. So full transparency, I, it was my uh, first summer job after I went to university in Saskatoon. I worked there for two summers. Um, I think 2014 and 15. And I worked at the Saskatoon branch. So the Western Development Museum is a provincially mandated museum. So it's like joint funded with the with the province, but was created by an an act of the Saskatchewan government. Mm -hmm. And there are four branches in one in Saskatoon, Yorkton, Moose Jaw, and North Battleford, and then also the curatorial center where the rest of the artifacts are and some staff also in Saskatoon. So I worked in the, Saskat- in the Saskatoon branch. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge museum. They have like all branches and the curatorial center. They have over 75,000 artifacts. So largest in Saskatchewan. Um, and it's been around since the 1940s. Right. I visited the Western Development Museum as a kid who grew up in Saskatoon many times, especially on field trips and that sort of thing. I think that experience will be relatable to any listeners who grew up in Saskatoon. So my knowledge of the museum is mostly based on the the Saskatoon branch. But Mm -hmm. for people who aren't from Saskatoon, this is, I guess, one of the most important museums in Saskatchewan, right? In terms of the number of attendees and just the sheer size of the museum. Definitely. They have, I think I was reading in prep for this podcast, an average of 200,000 visitors a year. And just in my own experience, a lot of those visitors are, you know, come more than once. They bring their kids on like every rainy day in the summer and tons and tons of schooled groups. And so I, I guess I should also mention the museums aren't identical. Saskatoon is by far the largest one. It's like a giant building, um, as you know. Yorkton is really focused on the story of immigration, a lot of Ukrainian immigrants around Yorkton, so it's the story of, of that. And then 
Moose Jaw is transportation focused and North Battleford is like rural farming focused. And then Saskatoon has Boomtown, which is its main exhibit that it's known for. But it also has, you know, kind of bits of, of all the other museums as well. Let's start off talking about Boomtown. Sure. So Boomtown Street is my most vivid memory of visiting the Western Development Museum as a kid. For listeners who haven't visited the museum, this is intended to be the main street of a settler town on the prairies, something like Saskatoon, in the year 1910, sort of frozen in time. For me as a kid, this became really what I thought prairie history was, sort of in its, in its most epitomized form, this boomtown street. And I, I would guess this is true for a lot of people who grew up on the prairies and visited the museum, a field trip or something like that. Do you think that's sort of true or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely true as in that's the intention, not necessarily historically true. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that, the Boomtown 1910, they um, intentionally called it Boomtown. So it's like a, a fictional town. It's not recreating, you know. Regina in 1910, but basically set up to look like any rural community or small city growing in 1910 Saskatchewan. So, you know, to paint a picture, it's the first thing you see when you step out from the lobby through the doors of the museum is just this huge street. I think it's the largest indoor street museum in Canada. Oh, wow. And so the most of the buildings, except for the church, well, it's, I think actually, except for the the school building, which was a church, it was brought in the building, but all the other buildings are were made there, but then they're filled with artifacts that would have been around in 1910. So some are older, but, you know, hypothetically could have been in a town in 1910. And so some of the buildings are the barber shop, the school, the church, the bank of Nova Scotia, because I think they funded that building. So it's Scotia Bank. Right. Um, you know, Saskatchewan <laughs> pride, I guess farm machinery uh, implement store, a stable harness store, a blacksmith shop. So sort of typical what you might see in smaller uh, museums around in the prairies, but it's like, you know, times 20. So it's a completely immersive experience seeing kids and even adults like open those doors for the first time was just like the, the really the amazement in their eyes was just like wonderful. And I think it's such a, it does such a successful job at getting kids excited about history there, there's like basically no signage on the entire street. So it's completely immersive. There, there's no explanations of what you're seeing besides in the Northwest Mounted Police Shop. There's a few signs that explain. And then in their most recent building is a funeral parlor that hmm. was added after I worked there. And it is quite a bit of signage uh, is in that building. But other than that, it's basically, it doesn't feel like a museum. It feels like, you know, you're transported back in time. And this is actually a good place to maybe explain how I've come to see the museum or my experience with it. I should say, so I'm a settler person in Canada, so Mm -hmm. I'm not Indigenous. My ancestors went, came to Manitoba in the early 20th century from Ukraine and Romania and also Germany. So it's pretty standard prairie story, at least where I'm from. And so I really saw myself in that museum when I started working there. And I was not given like a script to, to welcome people onto Boomtown Street, but I watched my bosses welcome school groups in that first two months of my summer. It's school field trips. And then I started, you know, basing my sort of welcome script off theirs. And so what I would say to students when they come in is, welcome to 1910 Boomtown. This is an exciting time in Saskatchewan's history. It's a time of opportunity. Immigrants are arriving daily. Towns are sprouting up everywhere. Farms are, you know, and and just really painting this picture. And then about a month into my employment, I had said this, you know, multiple times a day, every day of my, my job to welcome school groups. And then a school group from a reserve came and it really, I've never told this story before, but it, but it took that experience to make me even realize what I was saying. And that's kind of embarrassing. I had already taken first year Canadian history at university, pre-confed and post-confed. Like I I should have known that the the story Boomtown's telling isn't, isn't the full story, but it took me starting my spiel saying, what an exciting time in Saskatchewan's history. And, and looking at this 
these school kids from from a nearby reserve and it's like well not for their ancestors or or their grandparents this wasn't an exciting time so i think that sort of was like a real sh- a, a real moment that like shifted how i see the museum and and the things i sort of started working through then and and still i'm trying to today that's a really interesting experience of the museum i think and i think a really telling story about it so Let's elaborate on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on what the museum in the Boomtown Street specifically is centering in this sort of frozen in time 1910 approach? It's a settler town in the early 20th century. Obviously that's leaving out some important histories and peoples, especially indigenous people. Why do you think the museum chose to center this instead of sort of a different piece of prairie history, a different group of people, a different time period? What are your thoughts on that? Right. So I think it is a product of who started the museum. So it was started by a a, a man who was a British settler himself or, or his family was. And so he was telling the story that he knew as were all the other volunteers who started the acquisition process. So it was started in the 1940s at a time when urbanization gave the impression that Saskatchewan's history of agriculture and rural identity was, was at threat. And so they wanted to preserve that, that nostalgia. So those original volunteers in the 40s, 50s, 60s, they are acquisitioning 1910s and 20s cars and, and they're going to their own families to get these artifacts. And so, I mean, in any institution, you're like left with what your predecessors left for you. But even like, you know, times infinity when it's a, when it's a museum, you have the artifacts you're left with. And so that, those are the artifacts they had. So they did make, though, intentional choices to not say anywhere like whose land is this? What had to happen for this type of Boomtown Street to exist here? And, you know, some people say, well, I, I, so first of all, I don't think there are any indigenous artifacts on Boomtown Street or, mm-hmm. or any artifacts that sort of signal that history or really any like non-British settler sort of story. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. very clear like cultural items from any other anything other than British settlers. But in some ways that... The, it's a missed opportunity where you could explain why were there no indigenous, you know, stores on this on this street, right? We don't need to rewrite history and say that there was also an indigenous-owned store on the street because there wasn't. And why wasn't there? Well, because the Indian Act prohibited that, and those populations were confined on reserves. So, I don't think it's a matter of that it's inaccurate what kind of a town it's representing, but it's not contextualizing why towns like that existed. Right, and it's a it's a representation of just one type of of Community. history on the prairie. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's also very um, intentionally after 1905 when the province was created. All of their exhibits are very post 1905. Why is that? Why why focus on that instead of is it really is the history really that different as opposed to 1903? Why why after Saskatchewan is created as a province? Um, I think in the name Western Development Museum, they see the spread of of Canada onto the prairies as a linear development of progress, and it's very national in tone. The entire museum and regional pride, but the mm-hmm. but the regional pride is like attached to being part of Canada, mm-hmm. and so I think that date is significant in minds, and I think it also allows us not to tell the story of how the land shifted power um, power on the land. And if you start in 1905, the resistance in Saskatchewan is over. The The Canadian troops have come in and established towns with the Northwest Mounted Police. And so I think it's easier for those stories to be told if you ignore what led up to them, I guess. Right. What you said makes a lot of sense to me, especially given, you know, I used to work at a different museum that had a schoolhouse from the same sort of period, of, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And I used to do school tours as the sort of school teacher, right? And it's mm-hmm. a very similar sort of history 
in that it's really centering the experience of settlers mm-hmm. and very particularly Anglo settlers, mm-hmm. right, at the exclusion of of other histories. So, I think this museum, especially on Boomtown Street, actually fits into a broader genre of prairie museums that tends to really fixate on early settlers sort of pioneering. Mm-hmm. This one's obviously really big compared to some other ones, but I think that often small town museums and small scale museums tell a similar story. Do you agree with that? What do you think? Definitely. And I had an interesting experience as part of my, my master's research. I did some research in Montana. And so I went to the rural museums there to try and just, you know, get a sense of, of Montana. And what I was really struck by was on the, on the surface, they maybe seem the exact same as rural Prairie Canada museums, but, but reading the signage, they're so different. And even in the artifacts, they're equally as problematic, I think, in how they tell history, but in Montana, it's a history of conquering. It's like Mm. the Indian wars are, put on full display and artifacts that were taken from them. I mean, the, the taking parts of like, you know, post-massacre looting isn't necessarily fully explained, but the artifacts are shown and they're, they're celebrated in a, in a sort of like conquering type way or the wild west stories. But in Canada, it's, it's just erasure. And I think they're just, they're just not told they're hidden They're And it's just the prairie story. And so I think, the Western Development Museum fits other rural Canadian museums in that Indigenous stories just are are ignored kind of almost completely. So the Western Development Museum fits other Canadian rural museums in their efforts to erase Indigenous history and completely center the pioneer story. And that's a story that I'm familiar with. I grew up hearing about my ancestors, you know, coming from Ukraine where they were impoverished and being persecuted and they came to Canada to start a better life for themselves and their their children and families and they came with minimal money worked hard and toiled on the land and and built successful farms and I think what is what what's some people struggle with is they don't want to take that away they have that's in their settler consciousness is like this proud family stories that you know, so many families on the prairies tell themselves, but, but I don't think realizing the context in which my family came makes me admire them any less, makes me think they were any less hard workers and sympathize with their, their lives and their hardships. It just helps me more fully understand the positions they were in. And, and it's not, it's not telling the full story if you don't say they got free land because Canada stole that land or signed treaties so that they thought they had legitimate claim to that land. So my ancestors faced a lot of hardship, but acquiring farmland wasn't one of them. They got that for free and a $10 registration fee. And and that's not a story that is focused on in these types of Western development pioneering museums. Yeah, that I think that's an important point. And that's a really interesting comparison to the museums you saw in Montana. Yeah, that, I was shocked. That holds up for me having driven through Montana and visited mm-hmm. the site of the Battle of Little Bighorn and stuff. Yes. It's very, very, that holds up. Right. Yeah. And you can go here to Batoche and you can go to, you know, museums that are focused around conflict and, and the resistances. But but then there, those aren't carried out into all settler towns. The town I come from in Manitoba, we raised a local contingent to fight against Riel. And that's not hmm. anywhere in our local museum. So, whereas, hmm. you know, if that was in Montana, those types of artifacts, oh, this was, you know, taken from this battle. I think that is highlighted in, in American Western towns. But in the prairies, I, I just haven't seen that. So, why do you think these prairie museums really specifically want to focus on this sort of moment of settlement in mm-hmm. the at the turn of the century? Like, why not center, like, obviously... I think you've made very clear to the listeners why they want to focus on settlers right. rather than indigenous history. Why focus on the year 1910 mm. approximately so heavily? Why not, you know, there's settlers coming in in the 1940s and stuff. Why, why is it 1910 sort of approximately at that year that is so 
central to, I don't know, how public history on the prairies sees itself. Mm-hmm. This is a question I've had even bro- more broadly than just museums, even my own research. Like, why am I so obsessed with studying late 19th and early 20th century history on the prairies? You know, there's history before and after. And I think it's just such a monumental shift about power and about like the social and political realities on the prairies and the demographic shift, I think, but specifically for the Western Development Museum is a story of development. Like that that's in their name. It's always been in their name. And so if you're telling yeah. the story of linear progress, they do not tell the story of indigenous progress or indigenous innovation or, and so, so they start in 1910 one, because that's where a lot of their artifacts, the time period that they, their first acquisition of artifacts came from but two i think it's because that's like they see that as like the start of the story of saskatchewan right it almost reads to me as not a specialist in this topic specifically it almost reads to me like it's an effort to stake their own claim to the history of the land in a way definitely i think if you if you don't acknowledge the stuff before it's like yeah and this is the starting point right and and even I know we'll maybe get into it a little bit later, but the other exhibit, winning the Prairie Gamble, like that starts in 1905, and it was right. very much a like centennial celebration exhibit to track a hundred years of Saskatchewan history to 2005, and so that starting point is yeah important for really the the entire museum. Maybe let's move into a comparison with the sure. winning the Prairie Gamble exhibit now. So this exhibit is a major new addition to the museum. If I'm correct, it was added in 2009. Yeah, seven, nine. I'm not sure when the grand opening was. Right. So listeners who visited the museum as kids, depending on how old they mm-hmm. are and when they went, may not have seen this exhibit. But it's a it's a major new installation. And unlike Boomtown Street, this exhibit is not frozen in a particular year. It's intended to show change over time. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a few years since I've been to the museum, but if I remember correctly, it's intended to be somewhat less specifically focused on settlers, right? It's, it's trying to correct some of the mm-hmm. mistakes made on Boomtown Street. What are your thoughts about this portion of the museum? What are some of its mm-hmm. strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, so I, I love winning the Prairie Gamble. Um, it's a beautiful, like beautifully done exhibit. It's just lots of like high tech sort of exhibits like for for example to show the gaining of power on on farms in the like 1960s in Saskatchewan they have this magic kitchen where you see what it looked like before and after electrical appliances and things and so it's just it's just wonderfully done and and you're right so indigenous histories are not completely absent from this exhibit so in that way it's it's a great improvement from boomtown but <laughs> because there is signage that almost offers more areas of of being a little problematic in the in the telling of history and instead of erasure it's just maybe a little misrepresented rather than not represented and so so basically the the it actually does follow a settler family so it's not quite ready to stray from that original intent so right. the first thing you do is you get in a uh, train car and you are introduced to the I forget the family name it's like Cleary or, or something anyway I think if they're from Scotland and they're coming in 1905 immigrating to the prairie so it's still the same 1905 start but then each sort of section as you walk through instead of it being a straight street you kind of go into underneath little tents to like get you through the decades and you meet successive generations of this same family and sort of like what they are doing in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way to 2005. So you get like a hundred years of Saskatchewan history and what this fictional family might have been involved in in each of the decades. And some of some of them, some of it's done really well, but I think a lot of the issue is maybe vagueness or or just the language. So I guess I'll just give you some examples. Sure. Before, before you even get into the the car, the train car to, to get introduced to the family via like a video with some funny acting in it. Um, there's a sign outside that it's a picture of an indigenous chief. And then 
the caption says the land is who we are and that's in quotes and then underneath that is it just says either like indigenous chief or treaty six chief or Cree chief Denny chief something some description of of who that the man is it's not even clear if that's the man in the photo or that's the man who, who said it and and I think that's just like right there these are unnamed people and it's not a statement about like this is our land or or what happened with this land just sort of like a generic the land is who we are and it's just attributed to any any chief versus settler stories that are told through winning the prairie gamble you, it, it never just says like town mayor right it will attribute to the specific person that they're highlighting in the exhibit so that's just an example of of maybe not being very specific and I think if I could just say in like two words what winning the prairie gamble is, is just like a missed opportunity because there are so there's so many areas that I think have so much potential. So one of them is it's on indigenous farming. And so it's like a mannequin-y type exhibit. I'm not sure. There's probably museum studies a word for that. So it's an indigenous woman and she's I don't know if she's tending to the fire. She's doing something in front of like a small house, small okay. like mud or, or something house. And there are racks with fish drying over the racks. And then there are some hand tools in front of her house. So there's like a saw, sickle scythe, whatever, multiple kinds of saws, of axe. And then there's a chest in front of her. And in the chest are other smaller implements. And then there's a little like map of the exhibit that labels the different tools you're seeing in the exhibit and in the chest and then there's a line that says this was this these were the implements that were provided to each indian agency (laughs) but that's of course really small text so you assume that this is just any old you know indigenous farming family that you're seeing when really it's showing you all the tools provided to an entire band Mm. not per family but but anyway so but then in the background of the the exhibit is like a mural, a beautiful painted mural and um, tiny, tiny off in the distance, you can see a steam tractor and there's no signage about this, but basically I think it's, you know, a, a good attempt to show that there, there was probably a settler family next door in the next farm field over using a steam tractor. But I think this is a missed opportunity because the only reason I'm making these connections is because of the history courses I've taken because I've read Sarah Carter's work about first nations farming policy, but why not put the steam tractor that you have in another area of your exhibit beside these hand tools and to show the different, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you relegate indigenous history in Saskatchewan to its own section, then you don't see the parallels of the different kinds of opportunities offered to different populations in the province. And so why not put the steam tractor right next to this small axe that was given to this family and they were prohibited from collectivizing their their monies to buy threshing machines like my family did with because anything communal wasn't allowed on reserve versus my family's history is all about multiple families coming together to buy the threshing machine and so putting those side by side i think is telling a much more interesting story but when you have it on its own, I, I think there's just not the context there to really understand what you're seeing. And so a lot of this is like, I wouldn't tear this down. I don't think this is, you know, awful, awful history. It's, they're beautiful exhibits. I just think some extra context would is really necessary. Okay, yeah. So Indigenous history is part of this exhibit, but sort of cordoned off and, and treated as like not part of the story in a way. Yeah, and I think it's just, it also softens it. The sign says, yeah. as indigenous, or it says as settlers, so I was, I'm happy they call them settlers, at least. People are a little adverse to that word, adverse, sorry. It says, as settlers were moving onto the prairies, First Nations people were moving onto reserves. Hmm. That's on one of the signs. So they, <laughs> it's like, they're being confined to reserves. There were, there were Northwest Mounted Police patrolling the reserves to keep them on reserves. If they were caught in North Battleford, they were sent back to their reserves. Right. It's a very passive phrasing of yeah, like who, exactly. who's doing the <laughs> moving onto the reserves. Exactly. Yeah. So I think there's so much potential. I just think it isn't, it isn't really telling much better of a story than Boomtown. And I, and I will say at the end, you follow this family through the generations. Yeah. And then the last generation, they marry uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're Métis or First Nations. They they marry an Indigenous person in Saskatchewan, okay. and then 
you see the scene of this this mixed family standing in their field they're still farmers and then the like ghost of the initial grandma settler is is shown in like a transparent kind of like ghostly face and then she says she talks about her family looking down on them being you know reflecting over the hundred years and then she said I think this is now my great grandkid is Ukrainian and Scottish and Cree or or what she's listing the ethnicities of her great great grandchild and she says I think this is what they call multiculturalism (laughs) and so that's the end of winning the Prairie Gamble the last sort of scene with the family so they're making these attempts to tell a more diverse story I just think that can be you know expanded and and pushed a lot deeper right okay i also want to ask having not seen this exhibit in in a number of years Mm -hmm. sometimes one of the issues that seems to arise with addressing indigenous history is that indigenous history kind of gets sprinkled at the start of the period and then left out after that Right. So, you know, indigenous people sort of appear at the turn of the century, but then they're not in the story throughout like the mid 20th century or something like that. Is that the case in this exhibit? Is is it really sort of like indigenous people appear around 1900, 1910, 1920? And then, you know, on the portions of the exhibit that are about like the 50s, 60s, 70s, are they sort of invisible or or are they more Um, present? Off the top of my head, yes, they do appear. There's like a it's this is the wording used is like an Indian pony racing at the fair exhibit. So it's like a more celebration of like settler agriculture being at the fair and then also indigenous people participating in the fair. Of course, there's no sign that says they weren't allowed to participate in their own cultural events on their reserves on their own time. They were only allowed to do so for settler amusement. Um, So, you know, uh, so that's a bit later after at least the initial settlement period but off the top of my head there's a fiddle fiddle music playing with a okay. with a, a fiddle <laughs> um but yeah uh off the top of my head the depression is very settler focused it's like the bennett buggy and the the farmhouse that's you know covered in dust and then yeah not that not that i can think of so i i would agree that and again that doesn't even only relate to museums even just in the histories we tell indigenous histories mm-hmm. often you know stopped at world war one yeah it's it's a big problem i think actually for even history courses in universities where and i think this is increasingly changing but a lot of the time you know the, the very old method was indigenous history was just not included a slightly more recent method is talk a little bit about them at the start of the period for american history canadian history what have you but then they sort of disappear shortly after the early mm-hmm. colonialism mm-hmm. and so i think the effort now is to make them a more make indigenous history a more integrated part of the the history as a whole rather than mm-hmm. sort of just this sprinkling at the start right yeah i think so and i also will say i'm i'm focusing here on indigenous history because in the demographics of who visited the museum that was sort of the most obvious of what's being left out and that's also i think the most obvious sort of other group besides you know european settlers who winning the prairie gamble tries to include but Mm -hmm. the issues with the museum definitely also include other minorities being underrepresented so like immigrants from the philippines represent the highest population of newcomers to Saskatchewan since I think like 2006 mm-hmm. and they're not represented at all. So if you are the provincial museum to tell the province's story, you're definitely not telling a, a large segment of the population's story. Um, they also just recently started an LGBTQ two plus acquisition effort to get mm-hmm. to tell that story. So I just wanted to make clear that, you know, I'm focusing on indigenous history cause that's what I'm more familiar with. But I think a lot of other groups could have similar critiques of the museum. Sure. That makes sense. I, I think, yeah, as another example, you know, Chinese mm-hmm. immigration to the prairies is an important part of prairie history that I think does not make. Right. There is a laundry on Boomtown Street. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do remember that now. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, I forget what it's called. It's the name of, it's a Chinese man's name's laundry, and that's on the sign. But again, with no signage, the kids don't notice that. Like, it there's nothing else in the laundry to indicate that that was a Chinese man's laundry. And so you don't, 
you don't tell the story of why were there single Chinese men without their families on the prairies after the completion of the railroad, right? So uh, again, miss opportunity. Like there, that story's there. The exhibit's beautiful. It's captivating. It's great, greatly put together. But I don't know if that is more signage needed or videos or interpreters. I think another thing I wanted to maybe speak to about the complications of fixing these problems, like it's one thing to identify them. And obviously, like, I'm real good at identifying these problems, but I'm not the one in charge of having to, to implement them. And specifically at the Western Development Museum, they're not funded. I mean, museum, I don't know if anywhere museums are funded super well. Well, I live in mm-hmm. Ottawa now. They're funded pretty well here. Right. Okay. <laughs> but they're they're run by volunteers. And in the WDM Saskatoon branch location where I worked, they're run by elderly volunteers. And I'm right. not talking like they come in for the events. They're there multiple times a week. They're fixing up the artifacts. They're running the school program. So if a school signs up to like make butter and churn ice cream, right? Do you churn ice cream or just butter? Anyway, sure. <laughs> it's been a while since I've done the demonstrations. I've only or done make... ice cream in the freezer. So Yeah. <laughs> or make flour. It's It's these elderly volunteers that are running them. And so it's great to say we need to do like anti-racist education with our staff members, but what about the majority of the majority of people that the public's actually interacting with are volunteers that are unpaid and, and also usually of an older generation. And so if that interpreting is coming from, from those people, I think it needs to be prioritized, like maybe pay them or at least pay for this training that, that you think is required. And I think that is in, in the works at the WDM to get that sort of, staff and volunteer training and maybe it's already been done it's been a while since i've checked into it yeah it's definitely updating and improving interpretations requires financial support in some way right it's not just sort of we can we can't just like will it into existence and so generally that means governments need to support those types of projects exactly i want to ask you a bit about the comparison between boomtown street and winning the Prairie Gamble. So Boomtown Street, mm-hmm. sort of frozen in a moment in 1910 mm-hmm. versus winning the Prairie Gamble intended to demonstrate change over time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the strengths and weaknesses of those two different approaches mm-hmm. for trying to explain history to the public? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm. I think I'm conflicted because... I'm over here arguing for context. We need better explanations. But like, even when I go to a museum, I don't love reading the signs. Um, so <laughs> I read all the I, signs. Again, yeah. I know. I, I don't doubt that you do. <laughs> I do for like a bit and then I get bored. So I just think there's something just magical about the sort of immersive experience mm-hmm. of being transported into 1910 and understanding what it's like to be a pioneer. So I don't know how you... I don't want to take away that magic, I guess. I think one of the challenges for the WDM in that regard, or one way that could help, which is, again, one of these suggestions that, like, requires money, but the fact that there are no sort of people role-playing at these sites to sort of interpret the different different portions of it, right? There's no, like, blacksmith and then a banker, and then there's no uh, laundry proprietor. Those sorts of roles can sometimes communicate a lot, right? Like if you had a a Chinese Canadian interpreter playing the laundry owner, kids might actually realize that there are, uh, you know, Chinese immigrants in this period, right? In a way that Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. maybe don't if they just walk by the building. Right. And so again, the volunteers do do that kind of interpreting, but it's hit or miss. You, you can't guarantee there's going to be someone out on the street in like period clothing. And then also the summer students, which I was one, we also did that. Okay. But again, I think it's maybe more education. Like I I said, I was going out there saying how exciting 1910 was. So clearly I, you know, I wasn't the best um, person for that role. So yeah, I think I would agree with you like money for that kind of interpreting because then you wouldn't lose the immersive kind of experience but you would get a little bit more more explanation. And then I think a benefit of winning the Prairie Gamble is that change over time. Yeah. And they, because I think they do do a good job of it not being too linear and too a story of progress. Mm. You get the ups and downs. I mean, it's the classic like hard settlement and then, and then looking up, but then exciting 20s and the fair and then it's the depression and that's hardship. 
So they kind of follow the more like traditional timeline, but it, it's at least not all progressive, all linear. Hmm. So I, I don't know. I like both of them together. I, I, I do like the frozen in time aspect. I just think, yeah, without interpreters or signs, what are you getting besides just like, look at this old stuff. Right. And it's old timey. <laughs> right. Okay. So the other major portion of the museum that I want to talk about is dedicated to old vehicles, old cars, old farm equipment, like tractors, that sort of thing. And when I was a kid visiting the museum, I always thought this was sort of a strange thing to have in combination with the other stuff at the museum. It felt like very separate from the museum. But actually now, I think there are some important connections between something like Boomtown Street and the portion that's just sort of like walk through the old cars and the old tractors and combines mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. stuff. What do you think about the role of this part of the museum and its purpose? Yes. Yeah, so that's actually two different. So in the, the main, there are three halls, kind of like long halls. One's Boomtown. Yeah. That's the one straight. And then when you walk in on the right, that's the Prairie Gamble. And then on the left, I forget what it's called, like innovation something. Mm-hmm. And so it has cars, but that's more the like fancy of the time cars, like the tw- limousine and then through the 30s 40s 60s the the gas fueled car an old hearse whatever the flying machine that some guy in saskatchewan built out of like wood is on the roof anyway (laughs) and then at the very back of the museum is like i think it's unheated it was really cold in there some days it's like and it's not like a, a museum floor it's like rocks anyway so it's kind of like at the back of the museum i think that's what you're talking about with like mostly farm implements and it's i mean my dad so growing up my dad sold farm machinery and so he loved that part of the museum i agreed with you that that was like the least exciting part of the museum for me but i think that really speaks to like the original acquisitions of trying to preserve early farming history Mm -hmm. and so it's very linear because it it goes chronologically and you see implements get better and better and so then you can also sort of like celebrate how hard farming used to be yeah so i think like it really does go along with boomtown in that sense because that's the start of it look how hard life was with all these cute little trinkets and then follow farming through the years i guess yeah but again like my i think even missed opportunities there because what does it say to put a steam tractor that people like my family could have had access to beside you know hand tools and try and compete in the same market. Right. So I think, yeah, I'm not sure what the future plans are for that for that back area. I do know they've stopped acquiring <laughs> those kinds of artifacts. So if you want to donate your old tractor, you will ha- be like hard pressed to be able to. Okay. So they don't. Ex- I think they're just like maxed out at <laughs> farm stuff. <laughs> I was gonna say they take up a ton of space, right? And yes, at the curatorial center, I was shocked to see like cars and farm machinery stacked like four levels high in this huge warehouse building Hmm. because they just have so many. Wow. Yeah. It feels like it sort of fits into this progress narrative, right? About Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sort of celebratory, like look how hard things used to be and look how far we've come as a society is sort of the story of it. Definitely. It's not like at the expense of whom did did this progress happen yeah or even how are we defining progress like those kinds of questions don't seem to be um very publicly asked yeah exactly i guess yeah maybe elaborate on this a little bit this is a hard question to answer just on the spot (laughs) but some of my listeners are not going to be historians they may not understand what historians now see about understand is like the the issue with these sort of progress narratives. Can you explain a little bit why that's a flawed way to talk about history? Wow. Big questions here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess something that seems, you know, I guess obvious to us as history students, I think it harkens back to like the great men history. So if you're only telling stories of triumph and of progress, you are telling the stories of great men that achieved that progress and triumph, or at least took the credit for achieving that that progress. And it usually tends to focus around technology. So then we sort of 
become non-critical about like the benefits and downfalls of certain technologies it's just if it's newer it's better it's progress and so even with the farm implements like i don't know if it was actually just like bigger and better we see a lot of problems with like industrial farming today and so if you're looking at everything as you know a, a march towards better you're not going to ask those kinds of questions and then especially on the prairies the prairie story of progress like you just you just don't see progress for certain segments of the population progress in in the sense of like life getting better and of being a march towards more freedoms more economic prosperity more social capital like you you see declines or you see different hardships that you just will miss if you're only focusing on the pro the progress right that makes a lot of sense right it, yeah and you know for a lot of time the interpretation of history the, the sort of progress-based interpretive interpretation of history saw seizing indigenous land as a part of that, right? As sort of like right, part of right. the story of like uh, improving the land for agriculture, right? It saw like indigenous right. use of land as, as somehow inferior. And so if you see if you see progress as taking that land, then indigenous peoples are obstacles to that progress. Yeah. And and how are they anything else in that story then than obstacles to overcome to achieve Western development. So yeah, I think the 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 issue starts right at the name of the museum which which they've acknowledged so i hope we do get into that sort of the the change that is happening yeah we can talk about that a little bit now sure. thank you very much by the way for answering my really tough question about <laughs> progress i realized that All was good. A, good. that was a tough one and to uh to to you know pull the curtain back a little bit you know i sent you some of my questions yeah. ahead of time that was not one i sent you ahead of time <laughs> and that's a really hard one to answer on the spot so that was a good that was very helpful Thank you. <laughs> so to get into what you just mentioned, mm-hmm. the WDM recently issued a report about changes to the museum in relation to reconciliation and indigenization. I know that you were involved in helping write this report. Can you talk to us a little bit about this process and what some of the recommendations mm-hmm. are? Yes. So I want to make very clear that I... I love this museum. I love the people that work there. I love the volunteers. I had such a a wonderful experience working there. And these issues I'm pointing out are not ones that like I discovered the, the the people working there at the at the highest levels know about these issues and they're working really hard to change them. And they're facing the types of issues we talked about, which is funding and and support to implement these changes. So I started working with the curatorial center. So I that's not where I worked when I was employed. So I started volunteering with the curatorial center to help research for their inclusivity report, which I think was made live published in 2018. And I worked with um, Liz Scott, Elizabeth Scott. She has a PhD from the University of Saskatchewan and specialized in, I think, British uh, immigration and and super knowledgeable actually in like the story the WDM loves but she's also you know a professionally trained historian and and sees the types of the problems with how the museum currently was telling their stories mm-hmm. and so this was report was I worked there were other people on the report as well uh, but I just worked with Liz and my role was to research what other museums were doing provide that kind of information and, and museums all over Canada are doing important work and researching some of these big ideas like how do you decolonize a a settler institution like the WDM and so the report was in response to the truth and reconciliation commission's calls to action that pertains specifically to museums archives and government institutions so a lot of it is focused on repatriation so we actually the WDM doesn't have a lot of indigenous artifacts as you might have guessed right if we know the history of how things were acquired, they were going to their own families. These were settlers. Mm -hmm. So I think the number is like 300 maybe, which for 75,000 artifacts, 300 is not very many to be sort of like telling a story of indigenous history. And I think they have like, they have no African artifacts. Like there, there were, there are areas identified as like having zero artifacts that tell certain group stories Mm. and then very, very underrepresented 
Filipino artifacts, indigenous artifacts. And so the inclusivity report sort of highlighted the problems and then had focus areas of how to make changes. So anti-racist education for staff and volunteers, the rewriting of certain signage, and they actually do call for a change in the name. So this is a bold report to tell, you know, a 70 year old institution, like the name you go by is problematic, but it is. And so the reports, yeah, it's called the, I think it's called the inclusivity report. And it, it makes several, I guess, recommendations that many are sort of uninteresting because they have to do with like the inner workings of, of a museum. Okay. But first and foremost, they sort of like align with the TRC. So any indigenous artifacts are to be, a lot of them were given to the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. So that's why the WDM also doesn't have a lot because it wasn't in their mandate to tell those stories. Mm. So the mandate now is like to tell all Saskatchewan stories. And I think the the vision is... There's a mandate and a vision, but the vision is a Saskatchewan where everyone belongs and histories matter. And the mission is that the WDM is the keeper of Saskatchewan's collective heritage. And then it gives the demographics of Saskatchewan, like I said, like the the highest growing segments of our population, their stories aren't being told. So it's well within the WDM's current mandate to tell Saskatchewan's collective heritage to tell more than just the settler story. And I think it gave the the percentage of like when these the items were first being acquired in the 50s and 60s, it was like 2% of Saskatchewan's population was Indigenous. And now it's it's over 16. And in certain areas like North Battleford, where there is a WDM branch, it's 30%. And so to have none of those stories being told or, or being told poorly is a problem with the mandate if we're looking for collective heritage. So right. I'm sort of rambling, but just, just to say that this work is being done. I also know they... Um, they recently, I think in late 2020, I'm sure the pandemic, like everything has slowed this process. They put out a collections development plan and they actually have a list of items that they are no longer accepting. So if you want to donate these things, unless it's like spectacularly important, some like famous person's item or in some ways like so significant, they won't accept aprons, <laughs> uh, Bibles, cameras, cash registers, dinnerware, doilies, gas tractors, lamps, sickles, sewing machines, and so sort of boomtown, basically. Right. They, they straight up say, like, we are not going to accept that. And then they have priority areas, so they want to work with Indigenous peoples, but they acknowledge that, like, this is going to have to be a partnership. Sure. And they acknowledge the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous, the rights of Indigenous people to have control over that that history telling and and their items and heritage. So I'm not sure what the partnership might look like. And they started the LGBTQ2 plus history collection in 2018. Mm -hmm. And it says as of 2020, they have a hundred artifacts. So that's a plus. I think it went from like very minimal, less than a (laughs) hundred. So they're actively, you know, setting priority areas to, to get items. So that's one way they're, they're definitely improving. And I tried to find, I couldn't find anywhere online about the signage issues. So I'm not sure if some of the language that I talked about today has been changed, but that was only a couple of years ago. Okay. And I'm just imagining some guy with like a big collection of old sickles and he's so <laughs> disappointed. He's got them in like a big yeah. bag and they won't take them. Yeah. Well, I know that when I worked there, it was always the washboards. Like everyone thinks their great grandma's oh, washboard yeah. is something the WDM's, you know, going to love to receive. <laughs> but they, they have 50 washboards. Right. How, how different so, can your washboard be? Right. So, yeah, I think uh, the acquisition process, at least, is is like completely revamped about what they're actually going to focus on collecting so that they... How, you need the items in a museum to tell those stories. So in fairness to current staff, how do they tell the, these diverse stories when you go to your curatorial center and the items aren't there? So and so I know they're starting that. And yeah, I think uh, everyone should, should read the inclusivity report. I think it's an important change in Saskatchewan heritage. And they're also the um, Saskatchewan History and Folklore Society had a statement a few years ago about how you know they're not they're not looking or interested anymore in peddling myth pioneer myths mm. as a as a society so i think things are changing even though it's like fun to point out all the problematic fun as like a history student to to find areas where it's you know the representation is misleading and and make these lists of of issues i think there are people that are probably underpaid <laughs> that are doing this work mm. and so we should invest in our museums because 
great people are working in them to try and make these changes. Right. Yeah, so a final question for you. Comparing this museum to what you know about this history, your own research as well as the, the reading you've done, what do you think the biggest thing is that the museum does well in terms of public history? And what would be the biggest thing that you would like to change? I mean, clearly, the idea that Indigenous history has been excluded is the focus of this conversation. But, like, in what way would you like to see it brought in better? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'll start with the second question. So how how would I envision it being brought in, I think, is with a partnership. So Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's up to me to say how the Indigenous history is going to be represented or the current WDM now. I know they did have, like, at their main celebration, which is called Pioneera, which is obviously a giant celebration of the Pioneer era. Pioneera is um, uh, with live, you know, farming exhibits and such. If if, I think it was, like, 1960s, 70s, I've seen in old photos that Dakota Whitecap used to come and have their sort of, like, section with a village and perform dances and I that's not been a part of it when I was working Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure if that relationship is something that existed historically but I envision that that would be sort of the way to move forward and the TRC outlines this that if you acknowledge indigenous people's rights over their own telling that history I think that is the best way forward but I think they're also not telling the settler history correctly Mm -hmm. it's it's not up to to them to tell other people's stories but like like i said telling my own family stories is incomplete if you don't say how they got the land right so settler colonialism is not indigenous history specifically it's mm-hmm. it's the history of canada and so i think to to incorporate indigenous history and in artifacts I'm, I'm sure that'll be left up to a partnership but i think what the wdm can do on its own is to contextualize settler history with settler colonialism right and then what they do well oh so many things but I just think they make history exciting. I think it's, I've been to many museums and I don't, I think you're hard pressed to find an, a museum that is more engaging for children than Boomtown. And I, and things that I don't even understand why, like the train, like the same kids come there every <laughs> week just to like, look at the giant train and, and it's really immersive. They're allowed to go on the train and take pictures, you know, being the, what are they called? Captain? <laughs> of the train the, the conductor or the, conductor, the, the engineer maybe engineer yeah i don't know <laughs> clearly i was the captain the of the train at the, at the train <laughs> <laughs> uh, um but i think they just do such a great job at, at bringing history alive and so i don't want you know any of the changes to be made that i think are important to like lose that aspect of it is that i think it is it can be a magical place i do think for a lot of people that's that can be a really yeah, I agree that that's a really important way to learn something about history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I was a kid, those types of historic sites, including the WDM, but other ones I visited that are sort of the like experiential, immersive historic mm-hmm, site, mm-hmm. were always my favorite sort of history thing to do or to way to learn history. To the point that uh, when I was a kid at one point, that's the job that I thought was the perfect job for me was was <laughs> working at one of those sites and uh, being like, I don't know. Until you had to act like the schoolmaster every day. <laughs> yeah, that, did, did, did you have to dress up? I did have to dress up, but I had to change really quickly. So my oh. costume, I just got clothes that were like way too big for me so I could put them on really oh. fast. <laughs> uh, so I did have a costume, but I think it looked kind of silly. Well, men's men's suits were quite oversized so maybe it was fitting (laughs) that's true is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience that we didn't get to uh no i think i think these are great questions i got to talk about a place i love but a place that i also think has so much potential so i would encourage everyone to go visit the wdm i had lived there in saskatoon for a whole school year without ever having visited until i got the job and i just couldn't believe that such a a giant really cool museum was was in a prairie city so i would encourage everyone to visit all right well thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast and yeah taking the time to tell us a little bit and teach us a bit more about prairie history thank you that's it for today's episode thanks for joining us and a big thanks to tyler betkey for joining me on the show 
Before I sign off, I wanted to offer a reading recommendation for those interested in learning more about this topic. Adam Godry's 2016 article, Fantasies of Sovereignty, Deconstructing British and Canadian Claims to Ownership of the Historic Northwest in Native American and Indigenous Studies, is an excellent discussion of the justifications and failings of those justifications of Canadian sovereignty over the Prairie West. I'll include a more complete citation in the show notes. Off-Campus History is on all the major podcast apps, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia, and music was made by Nella Ruiz. Don't forget that the podcast is on Instagram at instagram.com slash offcampushistory, and we have a Facebook page as well that you can follow. You can send any comments you have about the show to offcampushistory at gmail.com. No hyphen in offcampus in the email address, and I'm on Twitter at Lewis Reedwood. If you're a fellow historian with a topic you'd like to talk about on the show, you're invited to send me a message. And of course, I would love to hear what others think of the show as well. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more off-campus history.